So I was working partnership across the aisle. At 5 a.m., we're still in hearing. He goes, uncle, I got you 2.3 billion. And uh, then we, we, we voted on it at 7 a.m. So we did a 21-hour hearing. And, uh, and I went home and I, and I missed my flight, direct flight. So I, got, I had to go through Atlanta, got lost because I had three, six hours of sleep. Missed my flight there because I was like drunk. I wasn't drunk. I, could, I was just out of my mind. You were tired, tired drunk. You exhausted three, drunk. Hours, I, yeah. I was like, do I go left or right? I don't know. <laughs> I need somebody to take me by the hand and help me get to my plane. But you got the, but you got the money for off it. Yeah. Welcome to Article One, a show about lawmakers, legislating, and the politics that make Congress work. I'm your host, Molly Hooper, a longtime Capitol Hill reporter, sharing with you my one-on-one conversations with Democrats and Republicans who are in the Senate, the House, on the trail, and behind the scenes. This is the very first episode of Article One. Thank you for tuning in and downloading. Today, you will hear from Don Bacon, a Republican lawmaker who represents a purple district in Nebraska, centered on Omaha. We spoke in mid-September, shortly after his bipartisan caucus, the Problem Solvers Caucus, released their framework for a fifth COVID relief package. In this episode, we discuss wide-ranging issues, including his disagreements with the president and various projects he was able to accomplish, and his commitment to foster care. You will find all the time codes in the story notes. Now, on to our conversation and getting to know Congressman Don Bacon. So, where, where's your office at? Where are you calling from? I'm calling from um, Article One with Molly Hooper's main headquarters here across the uh-huh. across the river in Arlington, Virginia. Arlington, okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, so we're right. I like your flag in the background, and do you like it? What a beautiful picture of the Capitol. Right, right. I, that's to give the feel that I'm here. This is where I do a lot of my hits for CBS, and um, right. so you know you get the whole patriotic thing, but it's not too much. You know, um, but I'm, I'm so glad to talk to you because I'm starting a new blog and a podcast called mm-hmm. Article One with Molly Hooper, all about Congress people, all about the legislative hey, branch. I like it. Article One. That's a way cool name. Yeah. Article One. Right. Exactly. And so I wanted, to, I'm so glad to start with you because obviously you're, you're, you represent a very unique district in that it's so mm-hmm. purple and so diverse and there's a lot going on. And that was my calico cat. Sorry, Libby. Um, I got two of them. Two. We have two rescue cats, and I love them. They're sweet cats. Uh, it's funny, they, uh, they love my wife. The, my wife is like their mom. So if we're sitting on a couch, <clears throat> they both curl up on her, and I'm like, just chopped liver. <laughs> well, if you're, just, if you're chopped liver, they would, really, they would really curl up on you. Yeah. Well, I, I do feed them half the time, but they, they, they have their favorite, and they make it clear who it is. All right. Well, <laughs> she's probably around a lot more. Yes, she is. She is. Um, but yes, L- Libby's a very rambunctious, Liberty Bell, she's a very rambunctious um, calico cat. Sorry about that. But, um, but I'm glad to talk to you because you do represent such a diverse district. First of all, I just want to ask point blank question. What is the one thing you wish your constituents knew that you've accomplished for the district in your time in Congress? Well, I want them to know that I've been rated in the top 7% of bipartisanship. Because I, I think it's so partisan out there. People have a hunger for um, people that know how to work across the aisle. So I was rated 29 out of 435 by the George, by George, Georgetown University. Uh, they partner with the Luger uh, Center. 
uh, they, they look at that. So I think if they, I think folks have a hunger, they're tired of the screaming and the shouting uh, and the my way or the highway. So I worked with uh, the problem solvers this past week where we came up with a compromise on the COVID relief, where we found something in the middle where Mitch McConnell's at and Speaker Pelosi is at and 25 Republican, 25 Democrats came to come together with a compromise. And I think it should give us hope that Republicans and Democrats, they're out there that know, they know how to work together. I really didn't care for our compromise or things I didn't like, but there's things I needed in there too. I think that's the art of compromise and consensus building. So, so tell me, um, you know, what is in there that you think you need? I, I just read an article that, um, that Omaha, for example, is getting $30 million from the state for COVID relief funds coming from the CARES Act. They need another $30 million. Um, got it though. They got the other 32. Oh, they did? Oh, good. In the county. So the county got, uh, Douglas County got $166 million. <clears throat> They gave $30 million to the city and then the state gave 30 and it's still a little, they, I think the city would still like a little more, but I think, frankly, that's the deal. Other than Illinois and the Midwest, most of the Midwest states, they're running balanced budgets. They're not running anything in the red. And so the politicians in the Midwest, myself included, don't really care to give money to New York. I mean, she, uh, Nancy Pelosi wants a trillion dollars <throat> to give to a city that was running deficits prior to COVID. And same thing with Chicago, same thing with LA. So that's the real issue. Uh, Mitch McConnell, I think, has a good point that, you know, in the Midwest, we've run uh, pretty fiscally sound local governments. And yet uh, she's, she won't cave on any of this other stuff unless there's state or local funding in there. And I really, I'll just tell you, it doesn't play well in the Midwest because we're running balanced budgets. Well, no, isn't there, so, isn't there a way in this, in this initiative, essentially, that the Problem Solvers Caucus came up with, isn't there a way to prevents that money aimed at local yeah. and state governments from going to pay those, those prior right. deficits. How does that work exactly? And what would that mean for Omaha if this plan is, is enacted? Well, the state local government stuff probably wouldn't have a huge impact on Omaha, what we put in there, because we've already covered the costs already. We, we had 1.4 billion in the CARES bill or 1.3 billion mm -hmm. in the CARES Act that went to state local governments our, our governors, our mayors, there was a little bit of fighting going on. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's like making sausage. Uh, but they finally compromised and found a way to support uh, the major cities. The problem is we didn't have a city that was over 500,000. Uh, Omaha has 460,000, but the county did. So the county got 166 million. So there was a little bit of this going on, but finally they made a deal. And I think we've been able to come out of it all right. And I think in a pretty good fiscal uh, shape. But what we did in this problem solvers bill was the state local governments had to show an actual downturn in revenue from March of this year on compared to what they had the previous March. So they, we were trying to find ways to limit uh, bailouts in New York pension plans with this, right? That should be a separate bill. So I think, uh, you know, we tried in good faith effort to solve all this. And I, so the, I feel like there was, the Democrats did not want to give in on liability reform. They found a day to, way to do it. We didn't really want to give in on state and local funding, but you know we found a way to narrow that gap by the way we wrote the wrote the plan. So for the state and local governments, they had to prove the down the decrease in money happened after COVID, and that would be the money that we would help replace. It couldn't be before March, and then on the liability reform, and I, I frankly support this, so I didn't need to be persuaded. I was already on this right. 
Well, you have to, if, a, if an employer is meeting an OSHA standard, mm -hmm. then they get the liability protection. I think that's the way it should be anyway. Right. The Democrats, uh, and our, once they got the OSHA standard agreed to, were willing to then to accept the liability thing. So I think this is how Congress is meant to work. Well, right? he, yeah. Well, he, well, here's a question about that because when when a company has to meet a standard for OSHA, say, you actually need people who are working at OSHA to go out mm -hmm. and make sure that these these people are doing what they say they're doing. Right. Is there money in this in this bill? Will there be money in the continuing resolution to make sure that the, these entities that need to enforce these regulations will actually have people to go out? And well, them. I don't know what the final CR will look like. They're going to, before the House or Senate does a CR, they're going to have an agreement. They wanted a clean CR. So whatever OSHA was funded at in the previous year, would be they'd be funded at the same level. Uh, but there are some opportunities to do some niche add-ons to the CR, but it's got to be agreed on ahead of time. It can't just be Speaker Pelosi or Mitch McConnell trying to shove down the other person's throat something that they're not going to buy onto because we do need a CR. We don't want to shut down. And so it's going to be a clean CR with maybe two or three things that were negotiated ahead of time. Okay. And I, I really don't know if additional OSHA money will be in the CR or not. Uh, they'll, they'll at least get what they were funded at, at last year's level. How optimistic are you that um, Congress will pass a plan initiative like the Problem Solvers Caucus before going home for essentially recess up to the election? I'm very optimistic on a CR. I'm not very optimistic on a fifth supplement, supplemental. Okay. And, what and I, I, I think, you know what, Speaker Pelosi called the Democrats on the Problem Solvers Caucus cheap dates. To me, that was, I think there, there's some angry de Democrats right now in the moderate side because they, I think yeah, we all see it, but they want their leadership to quit, get, out, get off their high horse could say in my way or the highway, let's find ways to make this happen. And I feel like these 25 Democrats, 25 Republicans, we did it. And trust me, there was things in that are, are, are compromised that I didn't really care for. But if we want to get, here's what drove me to do this. You know, in, in Omaha and Nebraska, mm -hmm. for every three jobs we lost, two jobs are back. So we have one, one third still out. So we're in a little better shape than the rest of the country. But we have niche industries that are on their back and they're gonna die. Tell me about they, those. So some of us are our live venues, like our playhouses, mm -hmm. bands, the, our arenas. Uh, they're gonna go probably eight or nine months before they get a ticket. Wow. That's, a, that's hard, they need help. And you actually, right? and, and Omaha kind of has a, an art scene. It, it's an artsy oh, yeah. place. You guys have some artsy folks, Fred Astaire, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he was born there and, and you have when what I was Gabrielle a farm boy from Illinois. I never saw a play or a ballet or anything till I, I moved to Omaha at 21 as a second lieutenant in the Air Force. That was my first play, my first ballet in Omaha. So that's where I got cultured. Right. And, and so, so you're like, who knew? Come to Omaha. Yeah. Known for so I saw the Caleb Aristikoff right. in wow. 1986 or 87. And uh, I'm not very much a ballet guy, but you, you know, I think you got to experiment with all this to see what you like. I love the theater. Right. And a theaters, lot of people do. But the theaters are shut down right now. So these actors and actresses aren't being paid. The ushers aren't. The conductors, the band, right. the stagehands. A whole industry is getting ready to go under if we don't do something. So that's one example. And I'll give you another example. Our bus industry, where you do charter buses, right. they're going to go bankrupt because they normally they take schools to games and they... They do travel, and right now these uh, 
you know, there's not much traveling going on. Right. So that's just a couple examples. So I would say most of the industries are coming back mm-hmm. in Omaha, but there's some selective ones that are not. And if we don't intervene, we're going to lose them. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's healthy for, I, I want a playhouse in, in Nebraska. And I want, I want a place where bands could come and and play some play some rock music, right? right? <laughs> exactly. Well, well, the thing that's kind of interesting is, um, you know, you were here in the 115th Congress before, you know, when the Republicans were in the majority, and also 116th when the Democrats are now in the majority. What has surprised you the most about the change between Republican rule, essentially, and Democratic control? Well, there's some similarities that I find not right. Uh, the one thing that always has troubled me is the Hastert rule, where the majority party thinks they have to have 218 votes from their own party before they'll advance legislation. That, that It's not good enough to have 180 plus 40 from the other side. They don't want to pass any legislation unless that the party itself can pass it on its own. And what I think that does, it creates legislation that's very right or very left. And, and coming out of that, the Senate won't even touch it because they got to get 60 votes. And so I think we need to change the culture where there's 218 that you try to work, work from the middle on. Now, I'm a conservative, but I'm not just into passing a conservative bill that has no chance in the Senate, right? right. We got to figure, if I, if I got to get 10 paces to get something done, I can't get there, okay, give me five. And then maybe next Congress will work on three more. But right now we're getting zero done because it's uh, these 100% bills, Republican or Democrat, and the sounds like, oh, I'm sorry, we can't get 60 votes on any of that. And so I would, I think I've seen it now on the Republican, we were doing it. And we were happy, I'm sorry for my language, happiest all, we're passing bills left and right, but nothing got passed out of the Senate. Right. As, and the Democrats are, they're mad. Look at all, everything we've passed. Yet it, these bills that they're passing, maybe we'll get two Republican votes. Right. The, a lot of the bills are passed because they're so extreme. But if they would work and compromise, and we build 218 votes in the middle, the Senate could probably get 60 and we could get more done. I just, I think there's a cultural issue. I, I would say it's more fun to be in the majority, especially when you're a committee. Right. Uh, I mean, we even, we have to get permission to rent rooms you know, or to reserve rooms. You know, when you're in the majority party, that's not an issue. <laughs> well, well, yeah, exactly. Well, actually, actually that kind of transitions because there's so many different ways I want to go in asking you these questions, but um, that sort of transitions into how Congress has been operating since the COVID um, pandemic has been upon us. Um, and I've been watching a lot of the remote hearings. I mean, I love watching these. I mean, I don't love watching these hearings, but I just write down every time code of like hearing fails, you know, where people unmute, mute, um, you know, in and out. I can't hear you. I'm not. Um, how do you feel Congress has adapted to this new normal in terms of committee business? And then mm-hmm. separately, how have you been able to do your job in terms of getting out and to see your constituents? Um, right. You know, because I've heard a few of your teletown halls and they're lengthy. Um, mm-hmm. They are, but it's very different than actually being in person. So on, right. first on the, on the Congress Capitol Hill front, then on the Omaha home front. I think we've done pretty well on committees going virtual. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you saw the one the other day where the one member was cussing. He said, I can't, I can't get, I can't get it off mute, but he was off mute. Yes, it was, it, it was, it was the best. It was, I think it wasn't Richard Blumenthal. It was um, Senator. It was, oh gosh, I can't remember, but I do know, I do know what you're talking about. Funny moments. I had one moment where I had two hearings go on at once. Right. And I got my mutes reversed. I had Mike Conaway yelling at me, Bacon, you're on the wrong one. Right. 
And so I think we've all had a moment that way. But I think we've done pretty well in committee hearings. I don't think we've done well with this proxy voting. I don't like it. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we have, we had a de Democrat on a sailboat doing proxy. You're like, that's not what the intent is for. People down at Cape Kennedy, right? Right. And I just, and so I, I don't, not a big, I don't believe in the proxy voting. Frankly, I, what I'm most troubled in, we've been at work for five weeks and six months. Right. I think it's, uh, I think we could, I think it's not good. Well, trust yeah, me, don't get me started because I think that Congress, if you wanted to be in your own bubble, listen, the U.S. Open just happened, a tennis yeah. U.S. Open, they were in a bubble for three weeks in New York right. City. There was a tennis bubble in, in, right. uh, out in West Virginia for World Team Tennis. Right. Congress has Capitol Hill to be a bubble. You can't go out and see your constituents. Yeah. So do your phone calls from there. It's just, I, I don't understand it, what the- So I don't is. like it. We've only been to work, I think now we've been to work 13 days and two months. And I think the country de deserved more from Congress. And I'll just put the wrap where it should be at. Speaker Pelosi is uh, caved, is caved to her team that, that just, there, there's a dogma out there that we can't be in. It's, you know, this, it's this COVID uh, hysteria. Uh, I'm about, and we, right, you, we could have built a safe environment here and, and still got our job done. It's like, why but are you flying back and forth anyway? Do you know they got back in the day before there were even planes, that's when Congress actually came together and yeah, got right. stuff done. Because, right. you know, you need to be representing your constituents. All this money that's being spent needs to be overseen. And I want to know as a, you know, as a, say I was a constituent of your district, I'd want to know, where all that tax paying dollars is coming. And is it coming back to me? Is it coming back to University of Nebraska's biotech, uh, biocontainment unit that actually is helping with the, the COVID process? The largest biocontainment center in the country. Right, and if you're not here to advocate for that, right. how do you make sure that those tax paying dollars are spent correctly? And I think part of the work gets done here, it's not just a committee, it's when you're interacting with members, you find out what bills are going on. Right. Uh, we have 8,000 bills out there. I'm not going to hear much about them back home for the most part, unless somebody calls and says, hey, I need you to get on this bill. But when you're in, working with your fellow members, people are trying to solve what they're doing and you hear, hey, that's a good idea. I'll get on your bill and vice versa. Right. So we lost a little bit of that. Now when it comes, to, I think one of the strengths I've had, uh, I like mingling with people. I, I, I went to 21 parades every summer. I go to every festival. And so I'm a personal contact person. So I think this is probably hurt me the COVID because things are shut down for three or four months. Right. And uh, so I, but we still have a, you know, we were a finalist, by the way, we, I don't, they haven't announced the winner yet for the best constituent services in Congress. Wow. So, so we're a finalist. Uh, they picked eight out of the Senate and the House. Uh, I think of equal mix of Republican and Democrat. Wow. And we're going to announce it this week or next week, who's the, the winner, but we're in the final eight of 535. So our guys are working hard. Uh, we solve lots of immigration issues, uh, VA, disability stuff, exactly. social security, passports that got to be approved overnight. Right. Uh, we do all that. And I, I know our, our team works very hard at it. Have you had any incidences of individuals who are stuck out of the country and trying to get back in? You know, and how did, how did you handle that? How do you manage that? Uh, we talked to the State Department asking for help. We had people stranded in the Caribbean, like in March and April, to get home. We had people stranded in the Middle East. And, but you primarily work through the State Department on, on, on those issues and eventually got them home. <laughs> so. They're back now for better or for worse, they're home. Right. But um, no, that, that's, that's very interesting. Um, I also wanted to ask you about some items um, that you've actually brought back to the, the district in terms of off at Air Force, Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. um, 
tell me a little bit about that because I, I've been one of these people, you know, I'm not Republican, Democrat minded, but I am legislatively biased and I believe mm-hmm. that earmarks are, are important. I want my congressman to go and get my money to come back to my district, um, right. be it Virginia or where I grew up in California. So, so what have you been able to do to get that money and, the, and those projects back? To I'll, come back I'll come back to you a little bit off it, but I'll just say, give me a, I'll give you an overview. I am proud of what we brought back to the district. Uh, we funded off it after the floods. I'll come back to that in a second. We've got a totally new runway being rebuilt, a World War II runway. Uh, and so we got that funded. Uh, we've been in, brought in some upgraded highways in Omaha through highway grants. Uh, we brought in a low and mixed income housing grant that's a dollar match of the state and local government. So uh, $50 million new mixed income housing area. So we brought that in. And the area that we, um, that's, I, I'm excited about, and I think that we're going to have to tell the story better. We've helped the University of Nebraska become one of the research centers for DOD. So is there's the, let, me inter- let me interrupt you because I want to sound a little bit knowledgeable. Is this the $92 million? On cyber, the cyber stuff. Okay. Now also, we got another one for, they became the center of excellence for DOD for counterterrorism, too. That's so right. We have a, so we have the cyber center of excellence, basically. We have also the counterterrorism. And these are the two hubs that the, our university is now the research center for uh, DOD. And I feel very, uh, so I'm proud of that. We're also working to make uh, University of Nebraska Medical Center one of the five test sites for pandemic surge capacity. And we got commitments from the local uh, benefactors to uh, do a public-private partnership. We've already raised $1.1 billion in Nebraska to build UNC as one of these surge uh, crisis centers for pandemic. We're hoping to get the federal government to pony up another $1.1 billion to match on that. And that's, that's my current project there. Let's go back to Omaha, uh, Offutt Air Force Base. We lost a third of the base a year ago from floods. Okay. And it was a $800 million estimated damage. And so uh, I had an agreement with the chairman of the HASC on the Democrat side to fix Offutt, but also fix Tyndall. They got hit by a hurricane, Camp Lejeune, Cherry Point. Okay. We had problems at Edwards Air Force Base in California after mm-hmm. an earthquake. And the night before the hearing, I had a commitment to get $2.3 billion. I walk into the hearing and it was gone. And so it was a markup. And I told him uh, at Chairman Smith, uh, I'm going to be on C-SPAN. And I'm, I'm sorry for my lines. I'm going to kick your ass. I'm going to be pounding the table on here. And I'm going to point out that you pulled funding from five bases. And then his thought was, well, we're going to make the Air Force pay for this out of the F-20, you know, the F-35s or less bombers. It's going to come out of hide. I said, well, no, that's not what we're doing in the rest of the country. We're we're doing uh, supplementals to, uh, for these uh, natural disasters. So my vote was, my bill was supposed to be first up and he kept slipping it. And as we started at 10 a.m. Uh, at 5 a.m. And I was lobbying, I, I want a majority on his side to vote with me on this. Well, weren't, are there some of those districts on, I know Edwards and <laughs> those congressmen. I had to help. Like Seth Bolton from Massachusetts, Donna, I'll help you. Right. This is the right thing to do. So I was working partnership across the aisle at 5 a.m., we're still in hearing. He goes, Uncle, I got you 2.3 billion. And uh, then we, we, we voted on it at 7 a.m. So we did a 21-hour hearing. And, uh, and I went home, and I, and I missed my flight, direct flight. So I, got, I had to go through Atlanta, got lost, because I had 36 hours of sleep. 
missed my flight there because I was like drunk. I wasn't drunk. I couldn't. I was just out of my mind. You're tired. tired, drunk. You exhausted, drunk. Hours, like, yeah. I was like, do I go left or right? I don't know. <laughs> I need somebody to take me by the hand and help me get to my plane. But you got the but you got the money for off it. Yeah, and uh, and so it's same thing like with the runway. My predecessor, uh, you know, Democrat is a friend of mine, Brad Ashford, got fifty million. It was more of a repair. And, find, and we said, hey, this is a World War II runway. So now we got 160 million to totally rebuild the entire runway. I mean, the whole thing, lights. And it's a World War II runway. It's, it's decrepit. Right. And uh, so it's uh, I'm so proud of the work there. But the, you know, a lot of these things aren't done uh, in isolation. These are all team wins. I needed help from Ways and Means. I needed help from Appropriations right. Committee. So this is all team effort. And uh, like I said, if it wasn't for Seth Moulton, I think uh, maybe the Democrats would have played a hard ball with me on the 2.3 billion. We had enough Democrats like Salute Carbajal too, right. that said, yeah, I'll, I'll vote for you on this. And uh, so- Is that where it I, helps to be a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus? Cause these guys kind of can, you know, you know, you can kind of help each other out a little bit. It does, uh, but I, I've known these guys before I was even on it. I've always been, a, you know, I, I think the armed services is always lended itself to working across the aisle. Cause a lot of the stuff isn't partisan. I mean. You're, the nuclear debate's a little bit partisan. Iran's a little bit partisan. But the 95% of uh, the armed services is not a very partisan thing. And I think we work together pretty well. Right. Um, let me transition to another one of your, your sort of pet issues. Um, I partially know about this because I interviewed Karen Bass last year ahead mm -hmm. of the Foster Youth Day. And mm -hmm. that was just so inspiring. Sadly, that didn't happen this year, but I know that you were an integral part in that and play a role in the Foster Youth Caucus. Tell me a right. little bit about that. And also, in the CARES Act, was there money to extend those, is it Chaffee or Chafee grants? Yes. Or to, to change the language? Because I think one concern that people have is where, what's happening with the foster youth that technically would be aging out of the system? Right. So we've extended the Chafee age limits and we've added some funding to it. So that was good. Okay. But, you know, I'm a co-chair of the Foster Care Caucus. I work with Karen Bass. So Karen Bass and I, uh, we're probably on the opposite ends of the political spectrum on a lot of things, but she's been a great leader in foster care issues. And I don't think we disagree on much when it comes to the foster care. So I'm a two-time foster parent. I had two kids early in life, my wife and I, then we decided to do foster care to adopt. Mm -hmm. and we adopted two kids that were brother or sister. And so we have four kids now. And our, the youngest is 24. She's doing great. So the, it's fun when you see uh, someone that's excelling in life. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's the best reward you can have. But there was lots of issues with foster care. You know, we, we got, I was a supporter of the Family First Act. Mm -hmm. I was a little surprised. I thought Nebraska would be irritated by it. They were the first state to actually pass it. So this, I, tell, I me a, tell us a little bit about this. Tell us a little bit about this. We're keeping families together and really working on prevention. Okay. Right. And I had sort of a, maybe a stereotype on my mind. Let's get some pushback from my fellow party members on this, but actually they embraced it. We became the first state to pass it. And so, so we want to keep families together as much as you can, but some families just can't do it. Right. You know, there's drugs involved, felonies, whatever it may be. You got to have a good foster care system. You need, these kids need a second, a better chance better chance in life than that they were having. And so I love Boys Town. Boys Town is just does phenomenal work. Uh, but the issue is really aging out, right. as you said, and helping them, and the leading homeless population in the 20s and 30s are kids, people out of the foster care program. So we need to find a way to help them have a, a affordable place to stay when they age out and give them that halfway transition there. Uh, we need to provide uh, tech training, 
trades training or college education. Uh, and that, that's where the Chafee stuff comes in right. as well. And so also I have a heart for trying to keep siblings somewhat connected. Right oh, there, yes. so we're looking at. Um, we, you know, another grant that I got was, you know, like our, our young teen, our teenagers and 20s, uh, the homeless population, a lot of them is foster care. So I got a good grant for Omaha to, for the home, for the homeless youth out there as well. So that's another grant that you talk about earmarks right. been able to get for Omaha. Right. And, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's essentially like taxpaying dollars coming back to the community. Right. And that's right. what, I mean, that's ostensibly what you're sent there to do is to make sure my right. taxpaying dollars are spent well and they come back to benefit right. the taxpayer. It's always, you know, an in, in, interesting argument because as a fiscal conservative, you, you want fiscal responsibility. So, but in the end, you're right. We want, we, we, we need to get off at Air Force, off at Air Force Base is the headquarters for our nuclear deterrence. Right. We gotta have a base that's working, right? You can't have a third of it flooded. So I, I feel like it's a, what we've done is appropriate. I'd worry about low and mixed income housing too. Right now we have a shortage. Right. Uh, it's hard to find affordable home right now in, in the Midwest. They're, they're going like hotcakes. I, I know people have got homes at 200,000. They're getting 30 bids in a day. Wow. And they're, they're walking away with another 50K that they didn't even plan on. Right. And so it's really, so somebody in the market's having a hard, if you're a starter, that's hard to get started in that environment. So we need to provide some lower, low and mixed income housing opportunities for people. Otherwise, uh, I'm afraid where we're going, we can't have all $400,000 homes. There's gotta be a blend. Right. We gotta have a blend of it. I needed a starter home in my young 20s, right. and, but we're losing those. Right, well, I need a starter home in my young 40s now. <laughs> Especially where you're living, it's expensive. I know that. That's why I do not have a starter home here. Maybe in Charlottesville. Yeah. Um, but but finally, I do want to ask because you are in a competitive reelection, <laughs> and have been taking some hits because of your backing of President Trump. Um, I just want I look. I went back and I looked at some of your more recent votes, and you actually split with the president on say voting for the United States Postal Service bill. Um, mm -hmm. And I noticed another items. So how do you reconcile your support for President Trump? And then the votes you've taken against ostensibly. I agree with the President Trump on most issues and okay. policy, but I'm not a blank check for him. I've, I, I'm doing the things I promised I was going to do to constituents. I ran as a Republican. I ran as a conservative. I won two tough races with my plat platform. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to just suddenly you know, like say I walk away from what I promised our voters. I'm doing what I promised I would do. So I always say you vote with the President 93% or whatever. I vote in 100% the way I promised our constituents. That's, and I was the only Republican challenger to win in 16 over an incumbent. And I survived a 40 seat blue wave. And I'm because I, I think I'm clear where I come from. I'm doing what I said I would do. But yeah, there's some issues that I uh, disagree on. I mean, I supported DACA. I know these kids, right? Right. I support TPS. They're great neighbors. They're great. They're, they'll make great American citizens, right. I, I believe. Uh, I have some differences on some foreign policy stuff. I, I didn't think we should just pull out of Syria and Iraq. I think we need a remnant there. Otherwise, ISIS will fill back in. Right. Um, and the Germany issue? Germany issue. I, I think Germany is very important as a rear part of NATO for logistics. If we ever need, need if NATO's ever in a fight, Germany's pivotal for its location and the bases we have. We just can't walk away walk away from that. Though I don't begrudge the president wanting to put more forces in Poland. Right. Right. There's some goodness there. So a lot of these issues are, there's not a hundred or a zero. There's some, you know, ambiguity. Here's one that I do feel strongly about. I do think the, the bases and that are Confederate names should change. I, I, most active duty Air Force I know, our military that I work with, 
do not like the fact that we have bases named after people that violated their oath. Right. And, and what a insurrection that cost 600,000 lives. And some of these guys were KKK members when they got out. I don't think we should have these bases named after that. But I think if we don't, if we saw it that way, it's still divisive. If you saw it this way, right. there are great people that we can name these bases after that everybody would like. Right. There have been people a lot of heroes them. since then. Yeah. So like Fort Bragg is named after a bad general, Southern Confederate. We could name it Fort Benavides. This is a guy that was a special forces guy that was wounded and shot 49 times or 48 times, saved over a dozen soldiers in a fight in South Vietnam, killed a, a Viet Cong with his bare hands with all those bullet wounds to save those guys, got him out of helicopter and rescued these people. And they thought he was dead and they were reading his last rites and he spit at the priest. That's Okay. Have you heard the story before? I've, I've heard I've heard the story before. I'm not great yeah. associated names, but yes, there are some because I read a lot of war stories. I'm yeah. fascinated with World War II, and right. um, my grandparent, my grandfather's fought in World yeah. War II, and so I mean, you read these stories of bravery mm -hmm. and heroism, yeah. and there's so many people almost that you. These can... are the names that everybody could agree to, and they're winners because I mean, they're the winners. Confederates were losers. Yeah. They were losers. Right. Fort Bragg was a bad general, or General Bragg. That's right. Most of those guys were. So, uh, they lost. That's, there's, you know, my opponent is made, I frankly just call it, she's lied. She's been telling people, I signed a loyalty oath. It's the biggest, it's just made up. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I think in the end, my actions obviously repudiate that, but it's a lie. And uh, that's part of the nasty things of politics. People, right. I, I, even, I don't even know if she knows she's lying. She probably believes it for all I know. But <laughs> well, well, that's that's all. it almost seems like today things get so lost in social media and instant gratification and just getting yeah. news out. Um, finally, I did notice that you were and are a proponent of the mail-in voting. Um, the president has sent sort of mixed signals right. on that. Um, yeah. What would you say to him in, in terms, in, is, is, is his message hurting Republicans? I've also heard that argument as well. Mail-in voting is a, a broad umbrella. So in Nebraska, you have to request a ballot. Right. And then you have to mail it in. And if it's not there on November 3rd, it don't count. Okay. And they do they do a signature checks. I think mail-in balloting, if it's a mass, 100% to everybody, and you don't know where it's going, and you don't have a suspense back. So I think there should be some smart outlines of how you do mail-in balloting. Nebraska's done it. Right. So I share the president's concern that some states have no restrictions really. Right. And so what we saw in New York, uh, Carolyn Maloney, or Mahoney, I'm sorry, uh, she no, won five weeks before they knew who won because they were still getting ballots. So I think the president's right to pick on some of the states that don't have enough restrictions and how this works. I think Nebraska's done it right. We, right. you gotta request it. it there's, there's no evidence of any cheating in Nebraska because I think there is, it's scoped. Uh, it's not just a mass mailing. So I would just, I would qualify it. Okay. Uh, states need to have some protections to make sure that the ballots count. Right, but in, but in terms of like a member of Congress running for re-election in California as a Republican, um, yeah. you know, and the president saying one thing about mail-in ballots and right. I mean, does that impact my race? But I do, I think the president's all right to critique California because this har ballot harvesting, right. I think it was wrong. We had seven Republicans lose in California. Some were going to lose, but two or three of them had six or seven points up the night, and the vote was the voting was up, but more ballots kept coming in. Right. And we had guys like David Valadeo, who I think was six or seven points up at the end of the night, right. ended up losing. 
And I don't think it's, there's got to be a deadline when ballots come in. Right. Well, and, and, and you're right. And, and the challenge is each state is in, in the Constitution. Each state right. is in charge of its own yep. election. And so I've, I, have a, I have a list of, you know, what the deadline is for each state yeah. and whether it has to be postmarked. And, you know, but you're right. There should be, you'd think that they'd all have to be in or at least postmarked by a certain date. So there's a lot of talks that we mandate that stuff out of Congress. I'm, here's my reluctance. It is a state's issue, right. like you say. It's in the Constitution. Generally, it should be a state issue. But what I've seen is Speaker Pelosi's wanted to actually mandate all 50 states do a certain way in ways I wouldn't agree to. She wants to go the other way right. with her state mandates. So I would, I'm trying to just protect. I think in the end, the state's got to do it right. And I think it's all right for the president to criticize those states. He was wrong, I believe, to criticize the post office. The post office had nothing to do with these mail-in ballots. Right. They're, just, they're just delivering the mail. It's hard to pick on New York, California, you know, a few of these states that aren't doing it right. But the post office, they were innocent bystanders in this whole thing. Right. And we need a good post office, so I was glad to support them. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Article One. I am including updates to Congressman Bacon's interview in the story notes and on my blog, Article One with Molly Hooper. Please share this podcast with one friend if you enjoyed what you heard, and please subscribe to the show to stay up to date with the episodes. On the next episode, I talk with Democratic Rep. Abigail Spanberger, a freshman lawmaker who represents a purple district in Central Virginia. And until then, I reserve the right to revise and extend my remarks.